Frank, I have a major announcement. Are you ready? Uh, 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 I, I like guessing these things. I like guessing these things. Nintendo is releasing a new Sonic the Hedgehog game. No, that doesn't make any sense. Oh. But it's about oh. our podcast. Frank, it's oh. about our podcast. I like these kinds of announcements. What do you got? So I want to make a major announcement. Um, we did this maybe uh, 60, maybe 70 episodes ago. Maybe 40, I forget. I don't remember when it happened, but... I want to make a uh, big announcement that it is official. We have surpassed 1 million downloads of Merge Conflict. Oh, you saved this to get my natural reaction. Cool. 1 million downloads. How many listens do you think that is? That's at least 100 listens, right? At least two listens. I mean, total <laughs> throughout the entire podcast. I mean, you know, I'm not 100% sure if I, those are downloads, they're not listens, but overall, <laughs> 1 million. Uh, which is is quite fantastic. And, you know, I want to yeah. thank all of our listeners for putting up with us for 160 episodes, Frank. I can't believe it. Yeah. Um, I, I said I said it last week. And we never know if we're talking into this box, if anyone's listening on the other end of the box. So it's good to know at least there's a million people downloading the box. Wow, this analogy really fell apart. But it is episode 160. And you know what that means, James? What's that mean, Frank? It means we do our lightning talks where we, <laughs> instead of picking one topic, which is hard enough, we have to pick five or six topics, and we're going to talk about each one for five minutes. The fun part of this is these topics usually come from you, the listener, and it makes our job easy. We just go and collect <laughs> all the questions you ask, and we answer them. Great. Yeah, so what's the first one? Because this is the only one that did not come from a listener, because we wanted to do a full episode on it, but I said, Frank this cannot be a full episode. This doesn't make any sense. Um, but we've saved it for lightning talk and it was your topic. So lead us off. All right. I always get nervous here because it's now we're timed. Okay. We are talking James about signing packages and this is about NuGet packages. This is about code share. This is somehow proving that your identity is used. So, or that, uh, no one has changed the code in one of your NuGet packages maliciously, like a man in the middle attack. I guess now that I've said it out loud, I guess who doesn't want that? <laughs> the problem, as always, is the devil is in the details. And I hate signing packages because all it makes me think about using is terrible security websites with keys that get tied to machines that I lose or I forget the pass key to. And I hate the whole process. Signing, James, what do you think of it? Well, I come from working on the Xamarin team, working at Microsoft and working with a lot of developers in the enterprise specifically where having packages signed is very important for them. And in some cases, they can only use signed packages. Uh, so, you know, this is really, really tricky, I would say, uh, because as an independent developer, um, me, like in my side projects where I'm doing libraries, I have that side of, of it, which I'll talk about in a second. On this side, I would say, yes, absolutely. It's a must. You know, Xamarin Essentials, for instance, that uh, grew out of that there was all these plugins, a lot by the community, a lot by me, some by other Xamarin's, and none of those were signed. And talking with some of the uh, enterprise developers, they said, we need an official signed package. You know, we've gotten, you know, people are getting on our case about it. They're letting us pass, but we need it for security because of what you just said uh, in general. 
Now, on the flip side of it, as an independent library developer, and other people may write in and argue this, I just, it's too hard and <laughs> you got to pay money for a cert and I don't want to go through those hoops and ladders and it's too complicated, so I don't do it. And that's, I, I want to do it, but I don't do it. Yeah. And I, I think um, just for my own memory, I have to remind myself that this is not assembly signing. That was something that, was trying to add security to .NET code, but never actually panned out. It, it was still vulnerable in a million different ways. And so we're talking about NuGet package signing. And I guess, you know, I sign all my iOS apps, but I go through a central portal to manage my certificates and all, my, all the ID, IDs and profiles you need to successfully make a signing system work. And so I just worry about Microsoft's general approach of we'll go pick a standard that three different companies use and tell you to go use one of those three different companies. <laughs> and good luck. We figured it out. You, you're smart. You'll go figure it out. So, yeah, I, I worry about that. It's new to me. I didn't know that there were teams out there that required signed packages. Is that common? Well, you know, there's definitely a lot. I think you are right. There's signing assemblies, which to me, you're, you're right. I would, wouldn't really go down that route. This is more of hey, you know, this is the package. Here's the checksum. Here's the here's the stuff in between. But I mean, imagine if you're the government, right? Or a government in general that, you know, you're going mm -hmm. to probably want some additional security stuff. So that All is right. something to, to think about. I mean, it's unfortunate, but that's how things work sometimes, you know? Uh, but yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that makes sense. Um, it'd be even simpler, I think, if we just put like a SHA-256 into our CS proj, then we don't have to sign it. We can just say this is the binary version that I want. That seems yeah. like a much simpler way to do all this. But I'm not a security person. That's why people don't hire me for security. Well, I was working on an ASP.NET Core app with John Galloway. And how the ASP.NET project works is there's an XML config file and they do just that. We were updating Bootstrap and what we had to do is update the, the version because it can come from one of many CDNs or locally, mm. but what it does is it there's an official checksum, MD256 MD hash or whatever. You put that in your project, it validates that hash and See, then it, perfect. it also... It also does some like it, it can optionally be like, hey, in this file, make sure that this thing is correct. Love it. I love the simplicity. And hopefully it is uh, SHA-256 and MD5. As far as I know, only one person has been able to break SHA-256 or that is get a duplicate hash for two different documents. And that's just one out of every one attempting. So I think it's that seems like good security to me. But I don't know. These signing people and the certificate people, they're going to win, James. You know they're going to win. <laughs> well, all it needs to do is be extremely easy to use. That's it. I mean, if it is if it is really, 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 really easy for me to use and integrate and I don't have to do much, I don't have to pay money, I'm in. Right? That sounds good to me. Nougat should be a signing authority. Whatever it takes to make them an authority. There. Done sold <laughs> and that's that's what would make it so let me go back to the nougat team and let's go figure that out <laughs> but if if there is an easier way please let us know because i know we, we obviously sign everything at, on microsoft but you know it, it is harder and you know they're not cheap certificates they're kind of expensive certificates that we have to renew every year so yeah i remember us complaining about it last time
Anyway, I think we spent too much time on this lightning round. I think we got to move on, James. And now we're going to do something that I know I'm not qualified to talk about, but I have good book learning knowledge on it. And that is managing your infrastructure, be it a million YAML files. I know they're your favorite, be it a bunch of JSON files. Maybe it's just a bunch of shell scripts. Maybe you're like me and you rely on Bash because why not? It worked in 1990. I can work today. <laughs> so the, the general topic is infrastructure as code, but I think of it more as how, 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 how do you deal with your infrastructure, James? How do you deal with it? Well, there is two parts to this. You are absolutely correct because we were arguing about this before the pod and I was yelling about how I hate YAML files with a passion. I hate them so much. It's so frustrating uh, because I like GUI UI tools. I'm a GUI person. I grew up in the age of GUIs, graphical user interfaces. They're a thing of beauty. You know, I'm just saying, Steve Jobs, he's like, look at this thing of beauty. It's a point and click and look at the GUI. And I love it. So I, I've always been drawn to beautiful sort of UI structure as infrastructure, which can be backed with code. Okay. I'm not saying that that's bad. Uh, and that's probably good from a maintainability part of it. And if I look at Bitrise or Azure DevOps, they all provide great GUI things, but also a YAML file. Now, people would argue that, that this is the configuration of build. Here's, what, here's the steps you do. Here are the things. Why would I ever want to go into a file, figure out the magical names and versions? And this, I'm literally struggling with it right now. What's the property? What's this? Like, Give me the dropdown. Let me select the things in the UI and it will happen. Uh, I hate YAML files. I do like that you can version them. People are like, oh, it's in your project. So everybody knows what's happening and everyone could reproduce that. I don't care, Frank, because it's so complicated that I don't want to use it. And, and But I do want it to be there, right? Like I want it to synchronize with my backend back and forth. So the GUI tool could synchronize with the backend to the code whenever I make a change and back and forth. So I'm okay with that happening. I just want a beautiful GUI. Now, the other part, which is these are the scripts in which to build stuff, like maybe cake scripts or bash scripts. I'm all for that because that is also readable. It's code and code is elegant and beautiful. And it is a graphical user interface into the commands in a way. And that's what I like. Woo. All right. Rant complete. Slash <laughs> rant complete. <laughs> Almost. Yeah, uh, I guess I'll just try to chime in on a few things you said there. Um, yeah. YAML, YAML. It's a file format to me, so I don't really mind them as a concept, but I know what you're talking about where you're just reading document after document. I, I get to the point where I actually have to read source code to see what keys people are pulling out of configuration files. I don't deal with YAML that much. I've been dealing with even worse things like you know old XML formats and all that kind mm. of stuff. But it's, it's all the same problem of when you're trying to hand edit these things. And so I think that's where you're saying, like, give me a GUI. What you're really saying is just make it easy for me to write these things. And we've seen the whole spectrum of that. Uh, I particularly like um, kind of that Bitrise workflow. T tell me if other ones do this too. But in general, it's a script thing. So it is a lot of code. But at least you can configure each script in like a simple form builder. And on iOS, we have the info P list, which is a little bit notorious because you can put so much stuff into it and it's very structured. But at least all the info P list editors come with auto completion boxes 
so you know what the keys are and it kind of holds your hand through it. I noticed that in VS Code, when you're editing a JSON file that it knows the schema for, it can do a lot of um, autocompletes. But yeah, it's this balancing act. We like text files because they work with Git. <laughs> you know, we can do diffs of them real quick. It's easy to tell what changed. But at the same time, for real, like it's not 1970. I'm not using a teletype here. Just let me have some buttons and some text boxes. I think um, the nice things out there are at least the simple forms builders. And honestly, it's why I started the Wii project. I wanted to build very simple UIs for very simple tools. And so I needed a quick GUI for that. Yep, I'm, I'm with you. Text files are good, but we need more GUIs. Yeah, I, I agree. And and that's why I fell in love with BitRise and Azure DevOps. They do exact same thing. Uh, and one thing that Azure DevOps did recently, which did help me, is that if you go into the graphical, um, if you go into the graphical builder, there's a button on any of the steps or on the entire thing that says view XAML or YAML, I mean. So view YAML. Yeah. And then you can see the YAML that's actually generating it behind the scenes, which is great. And um, you know, that's there. So you can go back and forth if you need to, but, uh, you know, so if I have to go like in essentials, everything is a YAML file and it's, I've worked all day just to install.net core three, where if I did it in the GUI, it would be just like, let me pick the things. And that seems to be my complicated part, but, um, beyond that, yeah, just give me beautiful GUI. So, I mean, we build GUIs for a reason and, uh, make it happen. And then always, like I said, have that fallback and that's what MS build does or .NET build. Like those are the command lines and the GUI just calls those things. So you can do it either way. So if you're a command line person or a YAML file, that's great. But if you're a GUI person, give me the GUI. Yep. This is a classic Unix architecture. <laughs> this is how they <laughs> wanted it done. And yep. we're all like, no, forget it. I'm writing VB apps. Ha ha. Ha ha. All right. Topic number three, James. This one I, I kind of dig. It's up my alley. And the question is, well, it's not a question. It's a statement. It's a, I don't know what it is. ML for the masses, James. Machine learning for the masses. Let's pretend that you are massive and you are a part of the masses. Do you feel like that you today can go use ML? And do you feel like you're able to uh, grow in that ability? Or are you just kind of um, stuck? Well, I think ML for the masses, how I see it today, is there's two sort of um, not, not necessarily camps, but there's two different categories. There is the traditional machine learning. I'm writing deep level Python scripts, or maybe ML.NET is a little bit higher than that, but there's a lot of scripting. There's a lot of code that has to be written. They're creating all these different structures. You're piping in data, doing data, this and that. And then there's the flip side, which is the ML as a service, which are your Azure cognitive services, your custom vision, where you just dump a bunch of things or call a RESTful API and it does stuff for you. There doesn't really seem to be an in-between today. And that I think is the hindrance of machine learning and AI, for me at least, where I can do the one side, but going to the other side to go any deeper is a huge pendulum swing today. And that's how I see the ML for the world. So the ML is out there for the masses. Yes. But as a developer, I think it's very lopsided one uh, side or the other. Hmm. Yeah. 
Uh, there, there's so many axes here, like when I'm just thinking about this question. And I would say like in some level, the APIs are ahead of the apps and the experiences that we're providing people. So in some ways, there's a lot of headroom there, like um, de app developers kind of have to catch up. And so to create apps so that the masses, you know, everyone <laughs> can enjoy the repercussions of robots taking over the planet. But at the same time, um, I do see some good things have been uh, coming out in terms of running models, executing models, uh, starting to see the first batch of apps that can are generic apps. So, you know, there's like iOS apps out there that do some kind of ML trick. There's that mm. face app. Do you know that one? I've heard of it, of much controversy, yes. <laughs> controversy because I guess they were uploading your picture to the cloud to do its processing, but then naughty, naughty, saving your picture. So that's the controversy there. I don't think there's, there's any real heavy security breach here other than they have your name and face attached to each other. <laughs> but um, that's basically old AI. We've been doing that kind of stuff for about two years now. But this is the first instance of it, like, really getting out into the masses, aside from the older stuff of just, is it a cow or is it a cat? Kind of hot dog or not <laughs> kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting to see that growing. Um, but then I've also seen some cool tools coming out. Uh, this one tool I absolutely love on the Mac. I just want to give it a shout out. It's called Runway, just one word, Runway. And it's kind of fun because you use it to try out models. Get it? It's a terrible joke. <laughs> oh. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, um, but it's a really good piece of software. It um, it was written from a designer's perspective. So someone who's used to using like Photoshop and Illustrator and graphics tools like that, really easy way to actually just uh, download some models and execute them. So there are good strides in everything, but the research is definitely far, far ahead of number one, the APIs, and number two, actual apps out there. Yeah. And now things, as things progress, cause it's still early days for machine learning sort of moving into the masses that the, the libraries, the tooling, the entire experience, I do enjoy sort of what ML.net is doing at a core level. There's even a graphical user interface to take in some data and figure out different things. And it'll try a bunch of popular, you know, ML libraries for you and pump out some things. And that is a certain level in general. So I believe that there's some some nice things there. But um, I'll be interested just to see over the next five years how it goes. And maybe I can become an ML expert. I mean, if you look at, I guess, what a Apple did with Core ML, that was, that was a start in a way. Yeah. Uh, real quick, um, I, I want to double down on what you just said about that cool trick ML.net can do. Uh, if you give it a CSV file and say, hey, I want you to learn how to predict column D given all this data, it'll just magically <laughs> crank away, burn your CPU for a little while and figure out a nice uh, model to predict different columns and CSV files. It's so easy to use. And I can imagine a different, a million different use cases that you could have for it. So I, I do like that part of that's even just making it easy for developers, too. I still don't think that that's like a, a, a masses thing. I think it needs a GUI and a nice, you know, nice UI to make it all yeah. complete. But it's definitely the step in the right direction. Now, let's take a second here to thank our amazing sponsor. Wait, wait, hold on. We're doing something special. 
What we want to do is help give back even more to the community by offering up some sponsorship slots once or twice a month or so to small independent developers, small startups, or small businesses that are looking to promote their product, or their app, their website, anything like that. If you're interested in doing this, it's just $50 to get a special sponsorship slot that we'll be doing here on Merge Conflict. Go to mergeconflict.fm, hit the contact button, and reach out to us. Now, let's kick it off with our very first ever indie sponsorship slot, the great developer over at appyweather.com. Listen, do you like weather? Do you need a weather app? Well, Appy Weather is for you. It is the most personal weather app, and it's powered by Dark Sky, which is an awesome API. What's cool about this is that it's an alternative design that's maybe not for everyone, but hey, at least it's not another weather application. I have it installed on my Android device and you can get it in the Google Play Store by going to appyweather.com or in the show notes below. It's awesome, it's fantastic, and optionally, you can subscribe for just $4 a year to get widgets, notifications, remove ads, and a whole lot more, and you'll be supporting independent app developers. And this puppy is powered by Xamarin, it's beautiful, I love it, it is my weather application. Go to appyweather.com, to learn more. Well, let's move on to the fourth topic, which also came it came from our Discord channel uh, in our Lightning Tops area there, which anyone can join. Just go to mergeconflict.fm and you'll see a Discord button over there to join in on the chat. It was just around, we had done a podcast a while ago on Skia Sharp and Skia itself and drawing and doing custom drawing. And this was about, hey, you know, it's been a while, some things have changed and there's WebAssembly and Uno and other things going, we going to the to the um, the browser and Skia Sharp has made its way to the browser. What are your general thoughts? Like, you know, are we just going to be drawing things on Canvas? In is this the future, Frank? <laughs> um, Skia update. So, from my perspective, I am still really digging Skia. It's doing a good job, and I'm very picky, especially when it comes to graphics. My biggest complaint with Skia has always just been how big it is. But if you can just plug your nose and ignore that, then uh, it's great, the capabilities it gives to your apps. In fact, I was just writing an app that used native drawing calls to you know, do all its drawing, and it was fast and fine. And I just thought, hey, what the heck? What if I just rewrite it real quick to use Skia? Just to See, I, I already had that experience with iCircuits. I already knew that Skia was fast and good, but I was like, in this app, would it really matter? You know, it, it felt fast enough. But I switch it over to Skia and you realize like when you're hitting 60 frames per second on the dot, you know, you never miss a frame. It's just perfect. That's nice. So that's my Skia update from that perspective. I think it's still doing great. But yeah, you mentioned it's on the web. Crazy, huh? I never would have thought people would get it going on the web. And I think this was done by um, the Uno people for the Uno platform. But they did magic and with WebAssembly and I don't know, magic, <laughs> they got Skia <laughs> Sharp working on websites, which is incredible. It enables people like me to write graphical apps uh, on web things using C Sharp. Awesome. Yeah, it's super duper cool. And uh, in general, I love Skia Sharp as well. I haven't used it as much as I possibly want, but I like seeing what developers are able to do with it. Like you could use it for an entire app or a lot of people just use it for custom controls or this and that. And I love like charts and graphs and gradients and the things uh, like toolkits that are being made with it. And it's really nice. I remember when we were implementing the checkbox, you and you and I, mm -hmm. and 
you know, it could easily be done, you, you know, just using, yeah. you know, what, what do we use? Core. Uh, we use core graphics, I believe. Yeah. We which, which use UI graphics or core graphics, one or yeah. the other. Which in Xamarin Forms makes sense. A lot of people were asking, well, how come you're just not using Skia Sharp? It's like, well, we don't want to bring in the Skia Sharp dependency, obviously, for <laughs> yeah. a circle and a checkbox. We can draw that. But yeah. if you are brand new to iOS and Android uh, and Windows or anything else, just and you come in, in, just bring it in. <laughs> you're going to love it because it's a single API to do anything. Uh, and, and it is really, really fantastic. And it totally adds to the story of cross-platform everywhere. And I know Miguel is, was has been beating on the Skia Sharp, um, you know, drum for forever. And, and I guess I never really realized it or why he was so passionate about it until you start to see the full story of Xamarin Forms, Xamarin Essentials, Skia Sharp, you know, and, and how those are evolving to, to kind of do whatever you want. It's, and it's really powerful. And then bringing that to the web, whether, you know, you're used, I mean, Skia has been on the web with, you know, Google, right? So it's nice to see it kind of bridge the gap and especially with WebAssembly, I think that could be really cool for just bridging that gap for some of these really complex controls that you may need. Yeah. And it's, it's funny. Um, we always needed a unified graphics platform and for what, 10 years, we held out hope that system.drawing that, you know, Microsoft and Mono and everyone would take it very seriously and give us amazing implementations of it. But that didn't happen. <laughs> so yeah. instead, we get Skia Sharp, which um, my only hesitation is that it's a Google product. But, you know, I get over my biases somehow and I accept the Google code into my beautiful iOS apps. It just in the name of standardization and allowing us all to just move forward and get on with our lives. I think it's awesome. Yeah, I agree. Ah, all right. Well, this one uh, also comes from, I think this was from our Discord or maybe it was from Twitter, but this was about, hey, you, know, you often talk about mobile applications all the time. It's a thing that we're into, uh, sometimes desktop, a little bit of web, but has there ever been a time in which you've had to create software for really weird or out there hardware or even develop new hardware in general and write code to that hardware? Uh, so I figure I'll let you open it up because you do ridiculous things, Frank. <laughs> um, I'm I'm going to go back. So this is kind of one of my first really real professional programming gigs when I was working in that R&D development. Uh, yeah, R&D uh, department. And I had the job of talking to all these data lockers. These are pieces of hardware uh, that have a million wires coming in and out of them, and you can attach these wires to different kinds of sensors. So you can imagine that you would have an automobile, and an, a car already has a lot of sensors, but we want more. <laughs> and so like, you just line the interior with sensors, sensors on the outside, inside, everywhere, sensors, just millions of them. And General Motors is an old company, and they have hardware from forever ago. And I was writing a piece of software that tried to unify all these data loggers into one stream. And that meant that I had to talk to all these old data loggers. And it was, um, it was actually quite fun for me because I got into programming reverse engineering file formats. And it turns out reverse engineering protocols between hardware and you is kind of the same thing. You're just looking at the data stream, you know, twisting a few knobs, see how the data stream reacts, you know, try to replicate the data stream, see the, rep, uh, see the patterns in it. 
And I reverse engineered uh, protocols to talk to a bunch of different old hardware devices. And it was quite fun. I, I really enjoyed it. That's crazy. Yeah. I mean, I can only imagine that entire space is just really far out there. There's so much custom hardware. So like these were expensive units that used to be supported by a company, but that company's gone under, but the unit is still really good. So it's still worth trying to figure out how to get the stupid thing to work. Yeah, totally. Wow. Oh, automobiles. Crazy. Uh, <laughs> well, I, you know, I was going to talk about a little bit of the stuff I did at Canon, obviously with the printers, which would be fun. But then I didn't really work on the printers. I worked on desktop software that interfaced with the ah. printers. So didn't get to do the fun, fun stuff. However, yeah, this is a little bit mobile related. And I've talked about it before, but at Seton, after I left Canon, I was writing a lot of mobile apps to interface with DVRs and media center units. And oh. we developed our own set top box. And um, was it a Linux machine? What was it? It was an it, it was an Android based machine. Oh, cool! so I got lucky, obviously. So it's not like crazy software, but it is crazy hardware because we um, built and, um, like the PCBs, we did the custom tooling for everything it was in. And, um, the, the first revision of it, uh, it never really, the stuff that I worked on never made it out to production, but <laughs> we had a very simple user interface that worked as a remote sort of media center host. And we were then working on a next generation box and to create an entire DVR system, user interface, uh, bootloader, everything. And in that instance, I had to do a few things. I had to one, create an entire bootloader, like home screen launcher for Android for this custom set top box, which is something that not many people ever do, uh, not especially custom. And that was all Java mm -hmm. and Eclipse at the time. That was terrible. And that one was because it had to be part of the build system in general and the, you know, and how it was being built. It was easier just to do it we were building our own Android image, like our entire image, right? It wasn't just slapping Android on there. Like we were building Android. So we did that. And then for that, I also had to create uh, an app installer marketplace. So I had to create an <laughs> installer. I had to create an updater um, for apps that could be loaded from a server that would be pulled down. We get version numbers updating in general. And then I created an entire DVR interface with the grid guide, everything. And then that was the Xamarin app. So it would launch into these different sections of the Xamarin app, which was really cool. But it was this tiny itty bitty box. I mean, it stack up two iPhones and, and that's it uh, in general. And uh, you can navigate around. We had a remote application and a real remote. But we had to get into the low level stuff, override all the Android. Like I was in the Android source code overriding what the home button did interfacing ir <laughs> commands into it. it it was it was the most crazy thing that i had ever worked on i think <laughs> that's awesome anytime you're at the uh kernel bootloader level then you know uh well you're, you're fighting demons at that point you better know what you're doing because you can cause so much damage i remember i had a senior project in school and i wanted to create a dreamcast game remember the dreamcast mm -hmm. oh yeah mm -hmm. and um 
I just wanted to create a game for it for a project, but instead I ended up writing a whole operating system, the bootloader. <laughs> I was talking to the CPU directly. I ended up writing my own OpenGL implementation on top of their graphics hardware. I just totally geeked out and wrote all low-level stuff and never finished the app part of the project because it took me so long to build an operating system. <laughs> oh, my. Yeah, because that's uh, what happens. It, it's really, really complex, yeah. Oh my. Yep. Okay. Uh, so, talking about complex and what you shouldn't do in software, our last topic, James, is Easter eggs. Have we gone this long? Have we gone 160 episodes and not talked about Easter eggs? Is that possible? Uh, we. I don't think there's a time that I can remember us ever talking about about Easter eggs. I mean, I've played a lot of video games where there are Easter eggs and some still unfound, which is always fun to think about. But yeah. I don't think we've ever talked about it. Have you ever, have you ever put an Easter egg into any of your software? And if so, it hasn't been Boy. found. That's the question. Yeah. Okay. So number one, I want to preface all this with, I wish I put awesome Easter eggs in all my software. The truth is, by the time I've decided that the software is kind of stable, I've just kind of lost the energy to put a witty little Easter egg in. I don't even want to like compliment myself or like do anything. Every so often, if I'm making a website, I put a little pie symbol in the lower right, just from um, the net. Was it called the net? Sandra the Bullock? Net. Yeah, mm -hmm. the net. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. There was a little pie symbol in the lower right. So every so often, you might see a little pie symbol in the lower right of my apps. Usually, it does something idiotically stupid. I wish I did Easter eggs. Do you? Do you do them? So usually, no, I would say I've been a pretty good citizen. Of course, I started writing video games early on. So I obviously the teams would put in little Easter eggs, little hidden things that you could find if you did certain things or certain co you know combos. Uh, in production software, I would say it's usually bad practice to to um, to put Easter eggs into your app. However, uh, at Xamarin Evolve 2016, uh, I was working with Pierce and Sweeky and a few other people on the app, and some people were you know building unit tests and doing UI design and the backend services, and I wanted to sort of give credit for everybody uh, that was working on the app, ah. but mm -hmm. I didn't want to just put like a credit section in it you know what i mean like i don't want to be like about and then here are the on people the notes. That <laughs> yeah so uh pierce and i worked very heavily on the app and uh, pierce and i are are big drake fans we love we love hip-hop uh and there's a, a quote from drake where he says uh eight more than 92 and something before that, something after that. But that's always stuck out in our mind. And, and Pierce and I would, would were joking about it because eight more than 92 is 100. And, you know, you keep it 100. And, um, and <laughs> we were clever. And, and I, and Pierce didn't even know put, this, put this in the app. So the bottom <laughs> of the setting screen, what I ended up doing is I put the words eight more than 92. And you would look at that and you were like, okay, okay I don't know why Confused. this is here. Yeah. Oh, it's a bug. Yeah. Like, oh, <laughs> they someone forgot to add these two numbers. <laughs> yeah. Someone forgot. To, yeah. You forgot to add numbers or something like this. But what you could do is tap on it eight times and it would bring up a screen that would show you details and where to get the code and things like that on it. I really appreciate that you didn't make them tap a hundred times. That would have been obnoxious, I guess. <laughs> that would have been that would have been super obnoxious. Yeah. So I did that. And this was also 
um, really funny because obviously this is an open source example. And also I could use it when I downloaded apps, like go into setting screens and see if people would leave it there or not uh, uh-huh. or edit it. Other conference apps say <laughs> other I conference see. apps. Yeah, because the, the, okay. the, the best part about this app is that it's a reference app and I highly encourage people to fork it, download it and mm-hmm. make the app. Go, it's all there. Make it yours. That's the whole idea. Um, <laughs> and fun. at the uh, Xamarin Dev Summit, I opened up the app for the first time, went to the settings screen and bam, eight more than 92 right there. Tapped on it eight times. <laughs> oh, and then my, 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 my East, my Easter egg was in it too, which is kind of fun. So, uh, he, updated That's awesome. it. he updated it eventually. So, yeah. Okay. Good story. Good story. You were just reminding me. I remember I tried to make an Easter egg once in my about box. I was trying to make like a very simple line drawn doom game. I just wanted to play Doom in the about mm. box because I heard once that like Excel had a flight simulator in it or something at some point in time. So I wanted to, I wanted Doom, but it never worked. And I ended up spending like three days on it. And then I'm like, wait a minute, I'm spending three days on this Easter egg. Maybe this isn't smart. <laughs> so I don't think I ever finished it. Yeah, I think, you know, the the cool part about Easter eggs are that They could be something as small as like a little info screen or they could be a whole game. I love inside of Android and every single release, there's a small little Easter egg and you can tap on things so many times. That's where I was really inspired by Uh. it to get it right. And it's all Easter eggs should be like very lighthearted. It should be very positive, you know, things like that. Um, It shouldn't an Easter egg is not malicious, right? That that's a that's a bug or a. (laughs) <laughs> virus really at that point if it like crashes your app or something but the idea is it's lighthearted, it's fun it gives some information and a lot of video games play uh play reference to that what's the original one adventure is that the game that was like the first easter egg ever oh that's right it gave credit to the programmer i think yeah. you had to get to the very end you had to do something crazy it was really uh, crazy and that was in ready player one a reference to that too which is kind oh, of oh cool. that's why we know okay well i knew before <laughs> you were that. making me you had to like it was like you had to go find like a hidden like it was like a a, a key that you would something. find, but it was invisible. And then the door to unlock it was also invisible. You need to carry it back. And then just you're right. The developer's name was on inside this room because back in the day, developers didn't get credit for their work in video games. And today. <laughs> and today, <laughs> a lot of developers don't yeah. get credit either. Yeah, correct. <laughs> Accurate. Accurate. Yeah. You were you were mentioning like Easter eggs in games, and I'm thinking of Fortnite. I'm like, isn't Fortnite just one giant Easter egg? It's just like Easter egg after Easter egg. The whole thing. Like, how could you have an Easter egg in that game? It'd be impossible to distinguish. Yeah, literally, go listen to the Nintendo Dispatch. I'll listen to it from this week. So the one that came out on seven twenty four. I talk about okay. the the brand the 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 last weekend's crazy ridiculous. Uh, robot versus monster battle that had been building up over several weeks then happened for like 20 minutes randomly on a a saturday afternoon it's crazy it's amazing is this something i can just so you talk about it but should i watch like a youtube video first oh yeah yeah you can just youtube you just go to kotaku and just like look at the fortnite um thing it's four minutes long it's amazing it's so good. Uh, <laughs> cool. Anyway, so yeah, that's it. Now, I did want to do one little special bonus for our listeners. Ooh, uh, if you've made thing. it this far into the podcast, you are a diehard. 
<laughs> and I wanted to talk a little bit more about these podcast metrics as a big deal for us to hit a million downloads. And again, Fun. yeah, number time, number Got time. It. So we have officially published 164 episodes. Oh, right. We're not good counters. I was going to be happy if we we're off by one, but we're off by four. Oh, well. Well, we what had we a few special editions and we started at index zero. Oh, yeah. Gosh, we really set ourselves up for failure there. All right. Factoid. 164 episodes in the can. All right. How many how many hours of content have we have we created? Oh, boy. I mean, in the beginning, we were really good at half hour episodes, but then we turned into 40 minute episodes. Um, blah, 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 blah. A hundred. Close. Hours? Very close. 120 hours of content. Ooh, 120. I went low. Okay. Nice work. We've been going well over a half hour. <laughs> yeah. And let's see. That is five, exactly five days of content. Wow. So if you're like stuck on an island and you're like, I want to listen to programmers talk for five days five straight, days. that's what you would do. You can Fantastic. do that. Now, what would you think is our average duration? 42, just to be cool. Wow. So by the way, Frank does not know any of this. Nope. Nothing. Average duration, 43 minutes. Oh, so close. <laughs> We're so close to being cool. All right. Got to talk one minute less on average. <laughs> yeah. All right. This will be a fun one for you, uh, too. So uh, what do you think? Well, this one's an easy Apple podcast is our number one. It's the number one ah, use for everybody podcast. Yeah. But what do you Fair think enough. the percentage of our users using Apple podcasts are? Oh, boy. Well, let's see. The Android people don't use it. So it's really a question of iOS versus Android breakdown. And if I said 50-50, then let's say a good majority of iOS people use it. So I'm going to go with 30%, James. 29.6%. <laughs> I love these games. <laughs> uh, that's Numbers very good. are the best. <laughs> yeah, so it, right here, it's thirty. Per, it's twenty nine point six percent Apple Podcasts, eleven point four percent Overcast, six point four percent Pocket Cast, and then a bunch of other things and Come browsers. On, I could have guessed those. Those were totally my answers. <laughs> no, no you a bunch of random ones there, um, which is good. Okay. Um, okay. Oh, wait, what was Overcast again? We gotta have our Marco Bell for the day. Eleven point four percent. Ooh, overall, nice. Mm -hmm. Overall. Uh, how, what is our percentage of listeners from the United States? Oh boy, this is a harder one for me. Um, hmm, hmm, ham, hum, herm, 80%. No, you're, this is your oh. way off 43%. Oh, oh, fantastic. I'm sorry to everyone I underrepresented there. You are awesome. Thank you for listening to our show. I'm obviously a bigoted jerk. <laughs> no, no, no. You're great. Uh, well, I mean, it's it's hard to know. I, you know, and especially it's an English, you know, language. Yeah, I, I overthought the English part. You did, and I forgot. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So let's see if I can find out any other stats. The stats screens. Is that in, it? That's. I think oh. that's all we have. I was trying oh, to find this is a fun game. I was trying to find like longest duration podcast, and he only shows me the last 
50 episodes. We've broken an hour. I'm sure of it. So we broke episode 132 is 70 minutes and episode. Thank you for listening, everyone. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I would also say that uh, the WWDC 2019 was 75 minutes. How did we talk that long? I guess it was a big WWDC. Yeah, it must have been. I'm still watching videos from it. (laughs) Yeah. Always and always. There's so many out there. I'm looking to see if there's anything. I don't think so. Everything else has always been around that mark in general. Well, yeah. Congratulations, James, on 120 hours slash five days slash 160 numbered episodes and 164 total episodes. Yes. Couldn't have done it without you. I wouldn't have done anything without you. <laughs> Good job, James. <laughs> well, thanks to you. Thanks to all of our listeners for supporting us in and out and all of our Patreon subscribers. Uh, with all of your help, we've made it possible. We do transcriptions of all the shows. Uh, we've been uh, doing some Twitch streaming of some of our shows here and there for people. Um, and we've been able to take a lot of your feedback and roll it into the podcast itself. So we thank all of you for listening and helping us hit the 1 million mark on downloads. Thank you so much. Ooh, amazing. And I think that's going to do it, Frank. So until next time, I'm James Montemagno. And I'm Frank Krueger. Thanks for listening. Peace. Now, there's one more thing that I want to do before I let you out of here today. So I want to take a few seconds to thank our amazing Patreon supporters that help make this show happen all the way through 1 million downloads. If you want to find out more how to become a Patreon supporter, go to MergeConflict.fm and click on the support button on top. So here we go. I'm going to list everyone down that's a current Patreon subscriber. Just first names. Don't want to give away too much PII. So Adam, Aiden, Alexander, Andres, Andrew, Andrew, Andy, Anthony, Benjamin, Benny, Bob, Brandon, Brian, Brian, Chris, Chris, Clinton, Colin, Damian, Dan, Daniel, another Daniel, another Daniel, Dave, another Dave, Dean, Dennis, Francesco, Guy, Hamanope, Homero, Isaac, James, great name, Jan, Johan, John, Joseph, Cal, Kevin, Conrad, Kim, Lashlon, Lars, Lorenz, Luce, Mark, another Mark, Matthew, Mike, Nigel. All right, next page. Not Invader Zim, Nuno, Paul, Randy, Richard, Rob, Robin, Ryan, Shaw78, Simon, Simon, Another Simon, Stefan, Stefan, Steve, Thryn, Thomas. Thank you so much for being a Patreon subscriber. Thanks to everyone that has listened to this show for over 1 million downloads. Have a great day.